so let's jump into Daniel today. This is going to finish out the major prophets for us, which means we've got an exam. <laughs> um, so that's supposed to be this weekend. And as I mentioned in my other class, this has been a rough week for me, and I'm working at another job all day tomorrow. So I'm not sure that your Daniel quiz will be up by the morning. And I also obviously have to get your Daniel exam ready for you or you can't take it. So I'll try to get those up as fast as I can for you, and I may give you an extension. I'm prone to give you extensions on exams, aren't I? Um, so you probably won't object, right? So those are the couple of upcoming things. Um, related to Daniel, though, so after that we'll, we'll hit the minor prophets, and then you know that's it. We're on our, our way out. So if you haven't already noticed, it's uh, very difficult to touch on much of the detail work uh, in these books. Now, even Daniel, it's only 12 chapters in contrast to um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, so you'd think we'd be able to, but actually there's so much stuff that um, we really won't, which is what, why they have book studies for. And I think um, that's not guaranteed yet, but I, I think uh, CCF's doing a, a Daniel book study in the fall. So if you really want all the details, I guess you but with that being said, let's jump into Daniel. All right, so what is it that we're looking at uh, geographically uh, and <coughs> culturally? Okay, so Judah is way over here on the left side. All right. And Babylon is way over on the right side in the Mesopotamian area. And so we are going to see that, that Daniel is going to be shipped off over there. He's not the only one. There's going to be a whole bunch of them. And so he's going to be plucked out of his home, and he's going to be uh, put in this, this new land, this, this foreign pagan land. And for him, that's going to start as a teenager. So the question is, what do you do with that, and how do you, how do you live in that? So let's look about some background information about the book, and then eventually uh, we'll get into the book. So the title. The title of the book comes from the name of the main character. Okay, you already knew that probably. Um, Daniel, the character, Daniel's the title. His name means God is my judge or God is judge. All right? The title comes from the main character, as I said, so I don't know why that's on the question. Uh, nothing negative is recorded about Daniel in, in Scripture. We, we just have all this positive stuff uh, about Daniel. His faithfulness, his leadership, uh, his ability to go into pagan cultures and live and be faithful to God. In fact, in the book of Daniel, if you recall, when his uh, enemies, adversaries, wanted to find something to get him for, they had to find it related to his faith, and they had to basically create a situation that by him being faithful to their God, it would cause him to get in trouble. Like, it's the only thing they could do. And um, I really want to emphasize, and I'm probably going to repeat this multiple times today, this idea that we're talking about living in a pagan culture. We're talking about in an environment that is uh, not friendly and maybe even hostile at times to faith in Yahweh and his God. And yet, Daniel is able to serve in, in that capacity. The author of the book is traditionally viewed as written by Daniel, the main character, and written during his lifetime. Now, critical scholarship views the book as having been written around 400 years after the events that are described. 
going to say a little bit more about that on the next slide where I discuss some more about the date in particular. So regarding the date, the historical timeline, okay? Now, if you're in my OT background class, like I mentioned this morning, there's definitely some, some layers of overlap um, between our two classes, which could be to your benefit in the sense that you're hopefully being able to, to fill out the big picture of what's going on. Um, or if you've already had it, the same thing would hold true. So Nebuchadnezzar rose to power in 605, and he deported the Jews, including Daniel. Then in 597, there was a second deportation that included Ezekiel. And the third deportation and destruction of Jerusalem is in 586, when Zedekiah was king. Okay, that's the end of Judah. And then in 539, I'll have this on a chart, okay, as well, in a few minutes. But in 539, Persia defeated Babylon and allowed the Jews to return home. And about 50,000 returned, but Daniel and many others stayed in Babylon. Okay? So you know there's a, there's a big chunk, right? Because you've got 50,000 that are going to return, and many stay in Babylon. And, of course, some of the, the poorer people, especially, they were already left in Judah the whole time. The book of Daniel is set in this Neo-Babylonian and Persian period, um, specifically within the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar from 605 to 563, and then his minor successors, Evil Marduk, 562 to 560, um, Nebuchadnezzar, 560 to 556, and um, Nebuchadnezzar, 556 to 539, and Belshazzar, 560 to 539. So these are all the different um, rulers. Now I'll have them, I think, on another chart also in a little bit. So it'll actually show up in the presentation. But so these are the different rulers that are part of the Babylonian uh, chronology. So. Now, there's been a discovery, okay, of eight copies of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were dated to about 150 to 200 B.C., which indicate that the book was written prior to 150 B.C., all right? So, think through that for, for just a moment with me, um, because the skeptics, I mentioned earlier, the critical scholarship, argues that maybe it was written 400 years later. Well, if you look at the bottom point here, Skeptics would argue the book was written during the exile, some 400 years later. This would put the date um, at, at least at 136. Okay, this would make the copies found in the Dead Sea older than the actual originals. So, Daniel 10, in addition, is prophesied in the third year of Cyrus's reign, making it 536. So we have copies. The Dead Sea Scrolls are not the originals. Right? So we, we already have copies by 200 BC, which means it has to be written before that. Otherwise, it's not the copies. Um, in 1 1, which we'll get to in, in a moment when we look at the actual text, but for the purpose of the dating, in Daniel 1 1, it says he's taken to Babylon um, in 605. He says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Okay, so we we've, we've been able to pinpoint down when when these kings ruled, and so we're able to determine when that was. All right. So Daniel was taken in 605. He lived at least until 537 or so, according to 10:1, chapter 10:1 of Daniel. By which time he must have been over 80 years old. But through 537, or though 537 is the last date given in the book, it's not the last recorded event, because the prophecies cover fifth, fourth, and third century, and, and some of the second. So you have this long time period. Now, remember also we talked about previously predictive prophecy poses a problem for critical fellowship and skeptics anyways, right? How can you know something ahead of time? Well, you can't, as Daniel would say, but God does, and God reveals it, right? So if you throw out predictive prophecy, that's also going to make you change the date of the book. You're going to say, well, it was written after the fact. Yeah, well, of course it all happened. He wrote it after, you know? Um, which, of course, totally throws out the point, or at least one of the main points, of showing God's sovereignty and control of world history and that he knows all things. So, also, the Septuagint, the LXX, you remember that? Right? Daniel is included in the Septuagint, which was translated around 200 or 250 BC also. Right? So, the Nebuchadnezzar cylinder from around 556 to 39 indicates Daniel's uh, accuracy and truthfulness as well. So there's strong internal and external evidence to support the authorship being Daniel. Internally, the employment of first-person pronoun occurs in contexts that strongly imply authorship, like in Daniel 7, 15, 8, 1, throughout 8, and 10, 10, 11, etc. Externally, uh, the vigorous attack against Daniel being the author by the Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, you may have never heard of him, but... 3rd century AD, presupposes a um, pretty universal consensus that Daniel wrote the book. Okay? The extreme example of such presuppositions is the testimony of Jesus, who clearly held to Daniel's authorship of the book that bears his name. This is text Matthew 24, 13. So, now, as a Christian, one of the things that clinches things for me, now I still like to see how others, archaeology, etc., support the Bible, but when Jesus says something, see, I've already staked my life on the fact that, that Jesus is God come in the flesh, right? And so when Jesus says something, for me, it's like, well, okay, that settles it, you know? So Jesus is saying that, that Daniel is this prophet that wrote this stuff also. So, In a book study class, we would probably spend an hour or more dealing with that. But this is an overview. So, the text itself. The Masoretic tradition, okay, for both the Hebrew and the Aramaic sections of Daniel is well supported in light of the ancient manuscripts and the versions. The Old Greek adds the pseudo, uh, pseudopographical, the prayer of Azariah, and the songs of the three young men after Daniel 3.23. If you ever looked at um, some different Bibles, like uh, Catholic Bibles and regular or, or Protestant Bible, that you would see that there are some differences. Um, they have some additional portions in Daniel. Uh, Susanna appears before Daniel 1, and um, so that's something like, Susanna, who's that? Well, it's the first time in the Bible. Um, but if you go look at like a Catholic Bible, you'll see 
the section uh, labeled that. Bell and the Dragon, another one. Um, and then some other unknowns as well. So this is related to some of uh, the, the Greek translations. And also, this is going to be uh, connected to uh, some other issues as well relating to uh, what should be in the canon as far as authority um, and inspiration, etc. So, one of the things for the Old Testament that I always go back to is, is this pretty much the experts in the Old Testament? Or group of people? Yeah, the Jewish people, right? And so I'm like, okay, well, what's in their Bible? So, um, I kind of want the same Bible they had, because the Bible they had was the Bible who had? Jesus, right? Exactly. So, yeah, um, from, from what I know and the research that I've done and what we've already talked about in this class and our other classes, right? Um, yeah, it's like Bell and the Dragon and stuff. They weren't in the, the Bible of Jesus. That happened. So, uh, you know, I want the Bible of Jesus there. So, both of these <coughs> are, are related then to that context of the text and then dating of the text. All right, now, this text, unlike some of our other uh, books of the Bible, has multiple languages in it. There's Hebrew and Aramaic. So, like the book of Ezra, Daniel is partly in Hebrew and partly Aramaic, which Aramaic is a, a close cognate language to Hebrew using the same script. The, <coughs> the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire were such world empires that they dominated the entire region. And like that, just like um, Alexander the Great, when he dominated, he brought language in, and it was partly a unifying um, element. But it's also, you, you need to think as a, as a leader and a, uh, a world ruler, if you are trying to rule over this entire area, don't you need a way to communicate with all these people? Yeah. And so what happens? Well, you're probably going to set up different centers throughout the whole area, and you're going to put people you trust there, and you're going to put them in a language, and, and you're going to disseminate your information in a language that you're already comfortable with. So it's going to be pretty much your language. And so what's going to happen over time? Well, you're, you're going to spread that language all through this area. And so that's what happens. Aramaic <coughs> is the lingua franca. It's the common language of, of the time period, including all the way up to the time of Jesus. So that's very Jewish speaking. Hebrew would be spoken in the synagogue. They would read the scriptures um, in Hebrew, although as Alexander the Great came in and Hellenization occurred, and the Septuagint was translated, uh, it seems more and more people were also reading the scriptures in the Greek translation after it had been translated. In fact, if you read many New Testament commentaries, you'll almost always see references to Paul quoting the Septuagint and not the Hebrew text. So, is that because I mean, no, that's because uh, we have the Greek text and we have the Hebrew text, and in some places they use uh, different wording or different um, order of words or phrases. Why? Because that always happens in translation, right? All of you that know more than one language know that you can't just go from one language to another with the exact same words, exact same word order. It's like it doesn't work. So, and that's why also sometimes some things are lost in translation. So the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, spoke to the king in Aramaic, okay? Um, May the king live forever. Tell your servant the dream, and we will give the interpretation. 
Um, the Bible testifies to the use of Aramaic as an international language in the 8th century in 2 Kings 18.26, and it was the official language of the Persian Empire um, also. So, uh, kind of like, uh, side note, but real quick. So the Phoenicians uh, developed and popularized the alphabet. And so this became a global phenomenon also for everybody. Because even like over in Babylon, instead of using the cuneiform, okay, and all these images and, and pictograms, when the Phoenician alphabet came out, everyone quickly saw, oh, it's much easier to memorize, excuse me, 22 um, letters than hundreds or thousands of signs and figures and shapes and all this type of stuff. And so the alphabet took over everywhere, and really, we wouldn't have our Bibles if it weren't for the alphabet. And so you can thank the Phoenician language for that. Um, so, all right. The use of Aramaic ruptures the neat divide that is often mentioned of chapters 1 to 6 and 7 to 12 for the book of Daniel. Why? Because the Aramaic is, is right in the middle of these portions. So what you have is the Hebrew introduction, okay, and 1, 1 to 2, 4a. And that if that just means like the first part of the verse. Remember, the verse numbers were not inspired, right? So they were added later. So the first half of the verse um, is in Hebrew. So that's kind of a fun thing, right? And then the second half. So right in the middle of the verse, you change, right? So I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't be the verse number there, right? Anyways, it goes to Aramaic all the way through chapter 728. And then it picks up in Hebrew from 8 to 12 again, right? Now, the interesting thing, though, is that this depends upon this section, which was written in Aramaic. So like, well, what in the world's going on? Why, why is Daniel writing Aramaic and Hebrew? Why is he going back and forth? So I also have a little bit of a, a mini uh, outline there, but we will bring that back up um, later. So part of the element is that some people would suggest that the Aramaic is more about the global aspect, and that Daniel isn't so focused on Israel as a lot of the other prophets are. So Daniel um, is already in exile, so, you know, Isaiah's writing to try to convince the people to turn back to God, right? Jeremiah's trying to tell the people to turn back to God. And so this is it's very Israel-focused. Even though in the midst of their books, like Ezekiel also, they have prophecies against uh, foreign countries and lands. But there is a big emphasis on God's people in the covenant and how their covenant breakers and they should return to God. Daniel has a much broader global uh, perspective that he's dealing with. He's dealing with all these nations So one of the suggestions and arguments is that that's why they, there's an Aramaic portion. It is the universal language. It's a universal scope of uh, world issues going on, not just related to Israel. So, some quick themes that we will see throughout the book. Uh, the sovereignty of God, that is going to be something that is uh, very clear in the book, that it is God's hand that operates. God sets up rulers and takes down rulers. You've heard that before. You see that take place in the book of Daniel. You also have to consider, related to the sovereignty of God issue, the people of, of Judah. So at this time in history, all right, 
my uh, OT background students can, can fill in the blank here for me. In uh, what year was the Northern Kingdom taken out? 722. Okay, so 722 BC, okay, what nation? Assyria. Assyria takes out the Northern Kingdom. All right? A little while later, in 586 BC, who takes out the South? Babylon. Babylon takes out the South. Now, put yourself in their position. Okay, you, you've got thousands of years of history and an Abrahamic covenant. All right? Not just an Abrahamic covenant, you've got a Davidic covenant. Where's the king on the throne? And so you had this idea that there's no way Jerusalem is going to be taken out. No way the temple is going to be taken out, right? And so now you're thinking, what is going on? Is God really in charge? Is God on the throne? Or maybe Baal's in charge. Maybe Marduk's in charge. Like, how come these pagans could take us over? And so, the other very interesting thing that takes place, um, I think we, we talked about in Ezekiel, right? And I think there's also, Peter, Peter Leithart would argue that there's a connection with um, the book of Samuel with this. When the uh, Israelites go into battle, and they, they lose the battle, this is um, in the very beginning of Samuel, uh, the first few chapters of Samuel, and they lose their battle. And so they go to get the ark, okay, and they lose it again. And then uh, the news comes back. This is a judgment on Eli's household also. And Eli dies, Hophni dies, Phineas dies, his sons, the priests. And then um, Eli's daughter-in-law dies and gives birth to a, a boy on her deathbed, named him Ichabod, the glory has departed. So God has left the building. God has left the people. Peter Lithar argues this is actually God taking upon himself the curse on the people. If you go read the Deuteronomy, you'll find that the final curse on God's people is exile. So the people should be exiled. And what Peter Lithar argues is that instead of the people being exiled in Samuel, that God exiles himself via the ark. And if you remember, the ark goes on a seven-month journey before it is returned to Judah. So he connects that also um, with what we're dealing with right here. That's why I just brought it up. Okay. So in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has these visions. And remember uh, last class, we had uh, this diagram on the screen that showed God's glory moving, right? Out of the Holy of Holies to the, to the, the regular temple part and then gone, right? He's gone. The glory has departed again. That's that's Samuel again. That's Ichabod again. That's God in exile. And then we talked about the fact that um, we have Ezekiel and Daniel over here in Babylon. And what is, what is God saying? God's saying, I'm with you. God, come here. And so he's again exiled out of here. So a little bit of uh, parallel thoughts and images there that you could think through as well. All right, so sovereignty of God, faithful endurance, okay? So you think about Daniel, you think about Ezekiel, you think about yourself. Um, I was really trying to really challenge some teens last night. Um, honestly, I was really I'm frustrated with them. But I was really trying to challenge them that, I mean, we don't live in a Christian world. Yes, America has a lot of 
Christian-y stuff, okay? Especially if you're in like the church circles and that. But, I mean, we're not a Christian country. We're, we're a pagan country. Um, look at what we hold to the highest esteem. You know, look at how we spend our money. Look at how we do whatever. You know, it, it's not focused on God. So, um, my students, you know, they brought up some issues related to, like, marriage. Like, why do you have to get married? You know, what's the point? Who cares? Um, and I was really trying to challenge them on this whole thing that, that Daniel's dealing with. That we live here, but if you're a, if you're a Christian, or in Daniel's time, just a follower of God, then we don't live by this culture standard. We, we don't live by the, the corruption and the paganism that goes on here. And Daniel understood that because for 70, 80 years, Daniel dealt with that and chose God's ways. Um, I think I think we have a real hard time in our country um, finding large numbers of Christians that will follow after God's ways wholeheartedly. And the culture is constantly pulling us in other directions. And uh, we lose our witness. You look at the book of Daniel, and who is a huge witness for God? Who, who does everybody know serves God? Daniel. They all know it. They turn it hardly as a result. So, faithful endurance. Okay, that's a testimony. Faithful endurance. How do people know? One of the kids asked me last night, he's like, some of your brothers, they say they're an atheist, and they're like, what can I do about that? And I said, you know, he said, can I, should I be a friend of them? I said, yeah. I said, what does an atheist need? Jesus. So how are they going to get Jesus? Right? So th that's your job. Yeah, be, be their friend. Well, I, I'm not going to be able to convince them. Okay, just live for Jesus. Like, let them see how you live your life. Okay? Faithful endurance. Wisdom and living. That ties in with the exact same thing. Okay? We, we can't get our wisdom from the world. Pride is evil and it's going to be judged. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? He is rooted in pride and it, it brings forth evil. It's got to be judged. And God's kingdom wins. Right? The rock that strikes the feet, the statue's gone. God's kingdom is going to win. How do, um, how do you maintain in, in, a, in a culture and situation like that? Um, I, I can't really understand their time period. You know, I, I've read about it. Telling you about it, but to really feel it like everything's been ripped apart from me. Like, even if another country came in right now and took over this whole thing, even if suddenly, like, we were just stormed right now by National Guard and put into, I don't know, some lockdown and we're all like freaking out, like, what in the world's going on, right? Or it was like Chinese Guard, okay? Um, that still wouldn't be the same thing because we don't have 4,000 years or 2,000 years worth of, of covenantal history behind us. You know what I'm saying? That they had. So to them, this was completely devastating. And yes, there's a little bit of misinterpretation on, on their part, but there's also this whole relational aspect that, that you just don't get. So to try to understand that and connect it to our culture is one of the things that we need to do as, as well. Um, if all of our rights were stripped away as U.S. citizens, I mean, wh what would that do to you? I mean, I, I know people that, they, I mean, they get out their Uzi, okay? Um, obviously, I don't think that's the right response, man. Uh, what, what, what is the right response? Like, what would you do? You say, Kevin, that's not going to happen. I don't care if it's going to happen or doesn't happen. Like, it actually could happen. Kingdoms are, are taken over, right? So, why 
what's, what is our response? These are the challenges that we got to think through that Daniel brings to us. Um, our, is, is the Bill of Rights my code of life? I'm not saying the Bill of Rights is bad. I'm just saying, is that what I live for, the Bill of Rights? Because I don't think that's what Scripture teaches us, right? Scripture teaches us that um, first and foremost, I'm a child of God, so I'm part of God's kingdom. And the Bill of Rights doesn't, doesn't uh, come from God's kingdom. Doesn't care about that. People are going to say, no, it's directly from the Bible. But anyways, <laughs> it's not the same, right? They're not synonymous. So are you all with me on this? This is the challenge that we have in this, this kingdom theology that we got to deal with. Okay? So, the importance of the book of Daniel. I've got several quotes from some, several different uh, scholars and theologians related to the book of Daniel. Okay? Now, one thing that you already know probably is, is Daniel and what other book of the Bible are for the prophecy gurus. Could be, but what's the other huge one? Yes, Revelation. Those fit in also, but yeah, it's Daniel and Revelation. I mean, if you're a prophecy guru, that's what you spend your time in, right? So for a long time, I, I would just stay away from it. I was like, man, that's all they talk about. Um, John Wolverd says, Among the great prophetic books of Scripture, none provides a more comprehensive and chronological prophetic view of the broad movement of history than the book of Daniel. Now, I want you to focus for one minute on that word broad. Broad movement. Okay, there are details in Daniel, but broad movement, big picture, right? And so today, you're not going to get answers probably to very many detailed questions. Broad, broad, big picture. One of the three prophetic programs revealed in Scripture, outlining the course of the nations, Israel, and the church. Daniel alone reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and Israel. Although other prophets like Jeremiah had much to say to the nations of Israel, Daniel brings together and interrelates these great themes of prophecy, as does no other portion of Scripture. For this reason, the book of Daniel is essential to the structure of prophecy and is the key to the entire Old Testament prophetic revelation. That's a pretty big statement right there, right? A study of this book is therefore not only important from the standpoint of determining the revelation of one of the great books of the Old Testament, but as an indispensable preliminary investigation to any complete eschatological system. So if, if you want to know how the end times goes, he's saying, well, you got to study Daniel. All right? So that's Walford, okay? Rush Uni says, this book assumes that every point of philosophy of history, which is the antithesis of every opinion held by modern man. Now that's a strong statement right there. Rush Uni sets forth five particulars in which modern man would take exception to Daniel. Now if you don't know who um, Rush Uni is, uh, you probably would not agree with his whole theological worldview system. Um, but, listen to what he says here. First, Daniel underscores the biblical concept of God. Okay, Daniel's God is totally self-sufficient, omniscient, and omnipotent. He is willing and able to infallibly reveal future events. He is far above anything man is or could ever hope to be. Second, Daniel sets forth unvarnished predictive prophecy, blunt, unmistakable, confident, and specific. The God of Daniel uses history and is not used by it. Third, Daniel unapologetically narrates miraculous events. Fourth, Daniel asserts the total government of God. Modern man prefers the anarchy of chance and a God who can be manipulated. Fifth, Daniel reveals the fundamental discrimination which exists within the human race between the saved and the lost. All right? Again, what's he saying? Daniel is a critical book. And Dumbrell, in his book, uh, I think it's called The Faith of Israel, highly recommended book, by the way. It takes um, 
gonna bring it, and then I have too many books, so I didn't. Uh, it is a theological survey of the Old Testament. Okay, so instead of just <coughs> an OT survey, which in an OT survey you, you basically you get kind of what we do here. Although I try to bring some of the theological aspects too, but you get a lot of the the structure of the book, the dates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So. Um, in a theological survey, it's a blend of biblical theology and OT survey. Okay, biblical theology is where you take a theme and you trace it through the Bible. So you'll see when we get into the text and him to mention some things um, that he talks about that demonstrates that. So Daniel brings the message of the OT to fruition. Daniel 1 to 6 establishes the context for 7 to 12. 1 to 6 ignores Israelite salvation history and takes us back to the generalized worldview of Genesis 1 through 11. Now, when we get into the text, I'm going to show you what he means. Basically, though, just as a, a quick foreshadowing, the terms used, like for Babylon, is Shinar. We'll get, that takes you back to Genesis. The word for image, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image, that takes us back to Genesis again. And so there's several of these things in the first six chapters, the first couple chapters, really, that allude to or point back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So that's his point. This is in keeping with Daniel's limited interest in things Israelite and more general concern with the totality of history and its outcome. Where does um, the nation of Israel kind of have its embryonic start? What person? Yes, Abraham, yes. Okay, which is Genesis 12, which is what? The chapter after he refers to. So he's saying 1 through 11 is, is this non-Israelite focus, right? In 12, God takes Abraham, and he's going to start kind of a new thing, right? He's going to make the nation. So that's what he's saying there. Okay, so Daniel in context, the literary context. The book of Daniel, which follows Lamentations, now it doesn't follow... Um, does not follow Lamentations in your English Bible, right? It follows uh, Ezekiel, right? So, but in the Hebrew canon, right, it does. It has 12 chapters equally divided into narrative and visionary. The narrative reflects on the importance of being faithful to God in exile, even during severe persecution. And the visions are often termed apocalyptic, stretching out a detailed program for the future of Israel until the end of time. It is thus a track for difficult times. So, oftentimes the book is understood in isolation from the larger story that it resumes. But once you see it as the resumption of the narrative that was suspended at the end of Kings. So, I'm, I'm talking about the canon as it's arranged in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? So, if you need a uh, refresher on that, look in um, probably the beginning of House's book, and he has it listed, right? I'll have a chart in a moment also. So, it's resuming the history, alright, of, of what's going on in the world. So, the theme of exile is explicitly taken up again by the narrative. Viewed against a wider literary horizon, the book begins to answer the narrative question of the destiny of the people of Israel currently in exile. Not only will they be protected from contamination, chapter 1, Idolatry, chapter 2, fire, chapter 3, and wild beast, chapter 6, 
but also there are universal salvific implications for this people group. Okay? That's from Stephen Dempster um, in his book called Dominion and Dynasty, another phenomenal book um, in the New Studies of Biblical Theology and Serious Commodity Press. So here's the chart that I'm talking about. This is from uh, Jerusalem again. Um, but if you remember, okay, the English Bible arrangement is not the same as the Hebrew one. And so here's what he's talking about. Remember, Jerusalem argues that there's this narrative commentary uh, back and forth. And so the law is established here. Okay, it's a narrative. Okay, then it's enforced and then it's enjoyed. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay. Prophets are former and latter prophets. The former are narratives. The latter are commentary on the narrative. The writings are the same, former and latter. Commentary first this time, and then the narrative resumes. So what Dempster was just saying was in the Hebrew canon, so he's another proponent of reading it in the Hebrew canon order, okay? It comes on the heels of the Lamentations commentary, and it resumes the narrative structure. So in this case, if you look at the narratives, these all go in order, so we're good there. This, this is where our order gets switched, right, with the latter prophets and former writings. So <coughs> even when I put on the board in the past, in your English Bible, if you just want the narrative portions, right? You read from Genesis to Chronicles, right? And then everything else, as I've, I've told you, right? The, the wisdom books and the prophets, or poetry and prophets if you prefer, right? What? They all go in there, right? They're the commentary that he's talking about. So when you understand this, we always think of Daniel as a, as a prophet, right? And he's saying, he's really, it's this narrative section he's, he's laying out, he's narrating the rest of the story, which follows with Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Chronicles kind of overview the whole thing, where they're supposed to provide us with focus. All right, does that all make sense? We all good? All right. <clears throat> so this is how the book is frequently understood, in isolation from the larger storyline that it resumes. But... Um, once seen, I just read this to you already. I did this out of order. I apologize. Daniel and Genesis. So, in this resumption of the narrative, there's strong echoes of the first few chapters of the, the Hebrew Bible. The eating of forbidden food is a strong temptation in Daniel chapter 1. Um, a gigantic human image is placed front and center in Daniel chapter 2 and occurs in a Babylonian king's dream. The head of gold, the chest and armor, arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and clay, etc. is struck down by a rock made without hands taken from a mountain. This rock then grows to fill the whole earth and the vision of the Babylonian king will take place in the latter days, Daniel 2.28. This is a, is a parody, potentially, of the divine creation in Genesis 1, where God made humans in the divine likeness to rule the world. This gigantic figure made by human hands represents hubris, pride, the original sin, and is explained as a symbolic succession of four earthly kingdoms 
which will be destroyed and succeeded by the kingdom of God that will endure forever. So you have a war of kingdoms going on. The gigantic structure or statue of the image that is destroyed by a small stone cannot help but bring to mind also the confrontation of Goliath with David and the resulting defeat of the former with a small stone from the brook. This is a Davidic rock, which will grow up to be a kingdom without borders. The rock taken from the mountain echoes other passages in the Bible as well. God's holy mountain, the David Temple Mount, grows to be the highest mountain and will result in the end of war in Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 5. The extent of the holy mountain will be the entire earth, Isaiah 11, 9. This will take place in the latter days, an expression loaded with eschatological phrase, Isaiah 2, 1 and Daniel 2, 28. Passages found in the prophetic books in kaleidoscope and piecemeal fashion are now brought together in the book of Daniel in a more systematic manner. So maybe it's almost like a systematic theology, kind of. Although Old Testament kingdom oracles do foresee a time, or a time of cataclysmic upheaval and earthly destruction coupled with the hope of universal peace and happiness. The realization of this is tied to God's timetable and finishing this out in his teleology. So before looking at uh, a parallel to this dream in the second half of the book, it's important to note that there are more allusions to the earlier chapters of the Bible. Just as Babylon is born in the wish of confusion, Genesis 11, so it ends in the same way, Daniel 5. It is the fate is written on the wall for profaning, sacred, uh, profaning the sacred, and no one can understand the message except Daniel. When Daniel is thrown to the lions for persevering in prayer, uh, the wild beasts are made subject to him as to a second Adam. And furthermore, it's important to note that the first six chapters emphasize dominion and authority. Thus the rocks that are cut out from the mountain represent the kingdom that will prevail forever. At the end of the day, the Babylonian king is forced to confess that God's dominion and kingdom are eternal. His son does the same in chapter 5, and a Persian ruler, Cyrus, will do the same in chapter 6. So all of that is out of Stephen Dempster's um, book that I mentioned, Dominion and Dynasty, New Studies in um, Biblical Theology. So, this is the, the aspect that uh, I think it's important for us to understand. That we, we don't just look at a book in isolation. It's not in isolation. It's part of a canon of scripture, and it's part of a, a game plan that God uh, is working out. So, all right. So, all four of those, I believe, were just mentioned in uh, what we just talked about. All right. Genre. There's going to be a little bit of a review here when we look at uh, genre because of some overlap of some information that we looked at when it comes to Ezekiel and apocalyptic genre as well. So you got historical narrative, you got prophecy, and you got apocalyptic. You have at least that. Okay. Um, you could probably throw in poetry and some other things as well. But I just threw up there some of the main ones. All right. Apocalyptic though is the main one that if we were going to uh, spend a lot of time in this book, uh, we would really have to dig into apocalyptic a little bit and how it works. Because as you already probably know, uh, Daniel is fraught with interpretation and uh, difficulties and debates. And part of that relates to the genre. Or what you think the genre is, because there's debate about that as well. What isn't there a debate about, right? So the apocalyptic genre, all right? We talked about some things that um, I think Ralph Alexander, and I'll bring him back up in a minute, had uh, mentioned about apocalyptic when we looked at Ezekiel.
But I also want to bring in a few more things. Some people argue that the apocalyptic literature came out of the Persian culture. Against assertions that apocalyptic literature originated with Persia, um, Joyce Baldwin demonstrates that the Persian influence is too late to be the basis for the genre. What does that mean? Well, it means that Baldwin is saying that there's already evidence of apocalyptic literature before the Persian Empire was an empire. So it has to have come before that. So without going into too much detail, we're quickly kicking that one out. Von Rad, in his Old Testament theology, argues that its source is wisdom literature. Okay, So he did a lot of studying, and he argued that the apocalyptic genre comes out of the wisdom literature that we've, we've already studied. And you already know that the wisdom literature was not just in the Bible. Egypt had tons of wisdom literature, and so did Mesopotamia, etc. So he argues that knowledge is the nerve center of apocalyptic literature, and that the matrix from which it originates is wisdom, understood as the effort made by the people of Israel to grasp the laws which governed the world in which she lived and to systematize them. <coughs> so, if you can think back to our conversations about wisdom literature, this, this will bring several things together in Von Rad's view. Um, one, you're going you're to have revelation okay, that comes in because wisdom comes from God, right? You're also going to have, um, let's see, an attempt to understand how to live out your life in the context of what's going on. And the apocalyptic is tied in with the revealing or unveiling, because that's what apocalypsis means, right? Just to reveal, the apocalypse. Um, so, now, the most likely origin seems to be a reorienting and a reinterpreting of prophetic literature, hence the close relationship between the two. Okay, so what we're saying here is probably not from Persia, probably not really from wisdom literature that got expanded over time, but probably from prophetic literature that got expanded over time instead. Joyce Baldwin says, if, if it be true that there is a connection between adversity and apocalyptic, there could be no more act, likely time for it to come to fruition than the 6th century, when every visible expression of Israel's very existence collapsed, and the shape of the future was completely unknown. Now, uh, if you remember, and I'll have this slide up here in a moment, but Alexander had said that um, times of crisis is the common denominator with all apocalyptic Everything. Remember, he's the one. He did his dissertation on it, and um, in his research, every time it's a crisis, and so that also fits with what Baldwin is saying here, as well. So, Baldwin continues. It's due to the secular background to the book that there is considerable discontinuity between Daniel and what has been termed prophetic apocalyptic. Missing from our book are the characteristics of that day as it referred to from the time of Amos onward. So when we talked about Ezekiel and the other prophets, and the use of, of that day, okay, or the day of the Lord, right? You see that Daniel doesn't really use that, that phrase. So Daniel does some other things instead. <coughs> he 
temple and city was surrounded um, by the traditional tribes in orderly array in, in his vision. So the sense of uncertainty and bewilderment persisted even after the return from exile. And the prophet Zechariah, by means of visions and oracles in um, Zechariah 1 through 8, showed both the divine pattern in Israel's past and the divine purpose for the future. Nothing less than blessing all nations is the culmination of both parts of the book of Zechariah. Despite the conclusion of all the peoples of the earth, these prophetic books are Israel-centered and covenant-based. Ezekiel describes an eschatological battle in uh, chapter 38 and 39, but he ends with the assurance that his people will all be gathered back to their own land, there to be recipients of God's spirit. Zechariah 14 pictures cataclysmic events, but the final picture is limited to sacrificial worship in the confines of Jerusalem. So with both of these, what's the focus? It's Israel. It's God's covenant with Israel. What was lacking was a genuine worldview and a more comprehensive understanding of history, which would take account of other nations and their part in God's overarching purpose. So that is where Daniel comes in. This is where Daniel comes to his own, and who can be better fitted to receive it than a well-instructed Jew who had lived the major part of his life as a royal advisor in the core of the Babylonian world empire. His duties had forced him to break away from the thought patterns of his childhood, and while maintaining his own faith, through the application of this truth in an alien and powerful state. He lived through the fail, the fall, of both the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, and in his old age, he would have been uh, ready to receive the visionary revelations concerning the final overthrow of God's enemies. As the days of past empires had been numbered, just as surely would those of the future be numbered. Though Jerusalem and the glorious land are of central importance in the last four chapters, the setting in which the visions are received um, remains through the end of the river Tigris. And the identity of the wise is left open-ended. Despite many attempts that have been made to identify them with one another group in Jewish society, the possibility remains the author may have had in mind others besides Jews who would turn many to righteousness. That, again, is all from Ball 1. Okay? So, um, in this, <coughs> uh, the apocalyptic uh, genre of Daniel. So this is a a repeat here from uh, Dr. Welgott's Daniel. These are the things that you see in the apocalyptic. Okay, so we talked about this in Ezekiel. It's here because we should see this again. So it's a literary genre, right? And what do you see? Symbols, visions, prophetic, and composed under special conditions. Remember that number four that I was talking about just a minute ago, and that you find a divine interpreter. We also mentioned that last time as well. So that's what we should expect from Daniel. And since you've read the book, probably, right? Uh, do we find that? I mean, just glancing at it? Are there dreams and visions? Yeah, there sure are, right? Um, visionary aspect, number two. Prophetic, does God speak? Yep, he sure does. Um, is it composed during oppressive conditions? Yeah, during exile. All right? So it meets the conditions that are listed. <laughs> This is also just a review of the dream visions that we talked about with Ezekiel, of what you expect in them, that God uses the literature of the day. Um, the Mesopotamian dream visions were uh, frequent, and you have the description of the setting, the record, record of the visions, and the interpretation of the visions. All right. And from looking at the book, you know that that's pretty similar. Here are some passages that deal with apocalyptic literature. There's more besides that um, in the Bible. Now, Joel or Joel, um, in 
and some other stuff. And then the interpreting guidelines, the, again, uh, I'm repeating just for the sake of dealing with the book itself. So seek to understand the major idea. Um, the guideline is underscored in the second one as well. Follow the divine interpretations. Be keenly aware, number three, of parallel passages in the Harmony of Scripture, um, which brings us back to both Dempster and Gumbrell and their connections with, with Genesis, okay? And then um, use the same approach with the symbols and imagery that you use with other figurative language, okay? So, all right. With that being said, okay, let's look at uh, the timeline that we're talking about. Ezekiel and uh, Daniel, okay, being contemporaries, okay, so this was the Ezekiel timeline that we saw, and so <coughs> you can see in uh, this, which I'll have, I think I still have the other one in here, where they're all put on here together, but remember, they're um, contemporaries, right? So Daniel in particular, though, we see main, main events go from about 605 um, down here to 536 B.C., all right? You sometimes have kid stories where Daniel's in the lion's den. He's like a kid. Yeah, he's not a kid. He's an old man. They throw him in the lion's den. Um, and so that story should be a little bit uh, revised. It's actually kind of uh, it's a little bit funny to me. We've uh, tended to uh, sanitize the Bible for kids. In fact, if you look at most kids' Bibles, the only um, the only gory, I'm not saying Bibles should be gory, but I'm just saying, but it is, right? Um, I'm just saying pretty much the only gory act in a kid's Bible is uh, crucifixion. Because you really can't have the New Testament without the crucifixion, right? Um, but the reality is that if you understand uh, what's going on, I mean, we read these in, um, my wife's good with this. She has all these uh, these kid songs. Like, there's all these songs about Daniel and his friends and fire and all this. Um, and we sing them like they're almost funny or something, you know? But uh, there are people getting ready to lose their lives. Like, it's life or death. And so I think that sometimes uh, the songs are good because they, they help kids to remember the stories. But... I think we have to be careful. Um, so, mu so much of uh, children's, you know, ministry or whatnot, like misses the point of the text and their attempt to, uh, well, I'll just say, dumb it down, I guess, um, or sanitize it, you know, from what's really going on in the text. So, who are the world powers? All right. So, you guys probably all know this by now. I think there's another thing that by the time you're done with me that you'll, you'll all know, right? You'll all know all the world powers, right, in their order, all right? At least Assyria and uh, the rest of them, right, down to Rome. So Assyria, Babylon, um, Medo-Persia, Greeks, and Romans. The only slight change that you might have is um, if you go off the acronym here, A-B-T-G-I-R, is that um, C is really an empty Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians, until Persia became uh, the ruling empire. So that's what we're dealing with. Daniel is, is going to be under all the way through here. So think about all the empires that he goes through. Because Cyrus, which allows them to return back and then calls to meet with Daniel, is under the Persian Empire. Okay, And then he prophesies about future empires after that. 
Uh, so this puts together for you the uh, three geographic areas and um, the three prophets. Okay, so we we talk about the teeter totter balance of powers between the areas. If you have over there the Babylonian area, you have the Palestinian area, and you have the Egyptian area. So that's the three areas, and you can see the three prophets. Okay, related to the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, who ends up in Egypt. Daniel and Ezekiel, who end up in Babylon. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, I find it very interesting that that God has put his, his spokesman, his mouthpiece, in these pagan countries. So if you think about what we've been talking about with Daniel, the goal being that uh, the world know God, then it shouldn't really surprise us. And so it also should cause us to pause and think about where we are. And if God wants pagans to hear about him, then who needs to go? We do, right? We do. <coughs> Alright, so who are the Babylonian kings? Okay? If you're in my first class, you, you might want this slide for that class too. I almost put it in there, but I don't think I just ran out of time. Babylonian kings that we're looking at, okay, for, for Daniel. All right, now Hammurabi was not during Daniel's time. So so if, you, if you're writing these down, don't think that like Hammurabi was there with Daniel. Okay, that's 1200 BC. So we just went back like lots of years, okay? And also with Hammurabi, just if you do some, actual, some scholarly work or research on it, um, you may see it as Hammurabi with a, with a P, all right? So people who are more critical in a good way, scholars who are experts in the field usually put Hammurabi with a P, um, but everybody else says Hammurabi. Uh, Nabopolassar and then Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Nabopolassar is the one that gets this, this empire started. Nebuchadnezzar is the more famous one, okay? And he is the one who's mentioned 88 times in the Bible, okay? He's the one that Jerusalem is destroyed under and that Daniel is going to have many dealings with. Then evil Marduk, okay? He is mentioned um, briefly. He has uh, a much shorter reign. And then uh, Nabonidus, Nab Nabonidus, and Belshazzar, okay, are the other two. Their father and son co-regents, okay? So Belshazzar is going to show up with the handwriting on the wall. Right? So... <coughs> Hammurabi is not in our, our story, but that's just for your historical benefit. Right. Daniel in Babylon. Daniel lived and prophesied in Babylon during the rules of at least the four kings okay, that we mostly just mentioned. So here they are. But also, during the Persians, you have Darius and Cyrus. So you think about wanting to know or rub shoulders with the most important people in the world, Daniel did. For 70 plus years. Starting as a teenager. <clears throat> a couple of timeline slots before we get in, into the text. So the uh, kingdom has obviously uh, been divided at this point because Jerusalem is on its way out. Now, when Daniel first goes, 
Is Jerusalem still up? Yes. Jerusalem is still up when Daniel goes. He was, he was part of that initial deportation. Okay? And so <clears throat> this is a, a quick overview of the, um, the timeline. This one includes our contemporaries so that you can see that Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel were overlapping. And it includes our, our last five kings of Judah. Okay? So you can see that they were reigning. The next slide is, is similar, but it simply adds the return from exile that occurs over here. That Daniel is prophesying. You see how long that bar of his prophesi pro prophesying is? Okay. Ezekiel's very short. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, right? Daniel, very long uh, time of prophesying. And then this one just puts Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, again, those three contemporaries, okay, into this um, format that you've had this slide um, probably last week, two weeks ago. And so that you can see their, their ministry as well. All right. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the, the main focus. Um, the nations, okay, if you look at the third line down, again, and Daniel, as we've been talking about, the main focus on the nations, it's a world issue. It's not just on in the land, okay? You'll see that uh, Jeremiah prophesied to the Jews of Jerusalem, whereas Ezekiel to uh, the Jews by the river Kibar, that's um, in, in Babylon, he prophesied to the Chaldeans in Babylon, all right? Writes from Jerusalem, writes from Mesopotamia for Ezekiel and Daniel. Um, it's interesting to me that the prophets mention each other. So Ezekiel mentions Daniel three times, whereas Daniel um, mentions Jeremiah. And then how they end. Um, Jeremiah ends with the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel ends with a vision of a future temple. Daniel ends with a promise of future resurrection. It's like each one actually fits in here greater. Um, this chart actually is from Dr. John Stevenson. Okay? And so <clears throat> you can also see that uh, Daniel and Ezekiel are in a chronologically reverse kind of sense. If you look here, you see that Daniel's ministry began with the first deportation, whereas Ezekiel is with the second. All right? Jeremiah had already begun. Further contrast with Ezekiel and Daniel, again from Dr. Uh, Stevenson, Ezekiel is a priest who spoke of matters of the spirit, whereas Daniel is a statesman who spoke of matters of the state. Okay, uh, Ezekiel emphasizes the times of Israel's glory, Daniel the Gentiles' glory, and Ezekiel, resident as a prison. Um, Daniel, where is he? Stuck in the palace, which reminds me of who else in the Old Testament? David was in the palace, but he was the king. So, um, Ezekiel focused on Israel and the Jews, and again, Daniel repeated again, focus on the world and the Gentiles. And so, with that, let's um, go to the structure, and then we're going to look, um, we're going to get to the text, but then we're going to have a, a time on Babylon before we get very far into the actual text. Um, a general structural overview from Stevenson, 1 to 7, 8 to 12, Okay. Uh, third person, first person, all right? Seven historical narratives, four prophetic visions, okay? We got Hebrew, then Aramaic, and then back to Hebrew. And so prologue in the very beginning, and prophetic history relating to the Gentiles, and prophetic history relating to the Jews, okay? We are going to break that down a little bit more than that, however, 
So I have uh, a combination one. I have one from uh, Darushi, and then I have a further breakdown that I want to show you. So uh, same main thing, 1 to 6, 7 to 12. Okay, this chart is really just for you to get a, um, a rundown in your head. So if you can kind of just imagine them. Um, for me, you know, the statue is in chapter 2, the furnace is in 3, um, 4 is, I would actually put tree right there, 4 is the tree, all right, that's going to be the judgment, but it's the tree. Um, five is the handwriting on the wall, six is the lion's den. So every chapter you got something big going on, right? So if you can just kind of remember those. And then uh, the second half of the book, you've got, a, you've got the four beast vision again, the ram and the goat, the 70 weeks, and then, and then your final one, all right? Now, I do want you to notice the chiastic structure on this Aramaic section from two to seven. So, you have um, two theological focus points, it seems to be, with authority and deliverance, all right? So you have authority here, and you also have authority in the center, and deliverance. And so you'll see that you have four kingdoms and four beasts. You'll see both of these are about some false worship, okay? In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were told to bow down, right, to the statue. And then in chapter 6, uh, Daniel <coughs> with the praise. So they both relate to false worship, and God delivered in both instances. And then again, in the very middle, chapters 4 and 5, about authority. With the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, are you really the authority? Who grew this tree? I am. Belshazzar, Belshazzar, what are you doing with the items from my temple? What, what, what are you doing with this idolatrous party? Do you not realize? I am God, not you. And so that's the uh, chiastic structure that takes place in here. So if you were going to summarize that down, okay, which is important for us to you know, get big picture ideas because you can't remember all the details unless you got your notebook with you, right? So you see the importance of authority and how God delivers his people. And actually last night, again with our teenagers, one of the conversations I was having with them, one of the things I said to them was, you've got to decide who the authority is. Like, is the authority the word of God? Or is it something else? You know, and once you decide that, that's going to set in motion how other things go. The end of the book is chapters 8 through 12, which we're back in Hebrew again, and um, you got the, so you got the ram and the goat for seven weeks in the, in the future, same as Jerusha's. What I wanted here is you to see the, the chiastic structure in the middle portion, okay? Now, with that being said, the book's not chronologically arranged, okay? And how do we know this? We know this based on what it tells us about who is ruling when the visions appear. So with that being said, you can see here's your rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. Okay? 
But then if you look down at the chapters, are, are the chapters all in order? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve order, right? So that means that they're pulled out of their chronological order, which means they're they're structured for a theological or other type of reason. Okay, so it's not straight chronology. Any questions? That makes sense, to everybody. It's not the first time we, we've seen this. Um, all right. So Daniel one one. First verse. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Alright, so, we jump into the book, and immediately we're faced with uh, a bunch of character and question things that uh, we may or may not be familiar with. We may not know uh, really what's going on. So, the first thing we really need to do is get a little bit of a feel of what's going on in Babylon. So if you're a teenager, Daniel was like a teenager when he was taken, he's taken out of everything he knows over here, and he's brought over to, to Babylon okay, to be groomed for work in Nebuchadnezzar's um, government. So the Babylonian Chronicles of Nebuchadnezzar the series of clay tablets known as the Babylonian Chronicles record the deeds of the king. This particular tablet chronicles the year 605 to 594 and includes his first campaign against Jerusalem in 597. So what we have here is not just the Bible, but we have uh, extra biblical evidence from Babylon saying, Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, I went to Jerusalem and I surrounded it and I took their people. And then eventually he'll say that he, he captured it, okay, and burned it. So, Babylon. This is a reconstruction of what it looks like. You can see it's a, it's a large place, okay, <coughs> sitting there, river running right through it. This is another uh, depiction. While Babylon was not perhaps at this time the great city it once had been and would again be, it was still one of the biggest and most heavily populated centers of population in the ancient world of the early first millennium. So, during this uh, time period, now uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. He was one of the builders. Just like, who's our, um, who are two of the builders? One from the north and one from the south. Who? Nehemiah did rebuild, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Who are they? You remember? <laughs> Who built the lock? United Kingdom. One of the three choices in the United Kingdom. One of the rulers. <laughs> You'll eat it eventually. Built all these buildings, palaces, etc., etc., right? What about the northern kingdom? 
He doesn't get a lot of uh, biblical text, but he gets a lot of extra biblical text. He's not a good guy, but he did a lot of building. Omri. So Omri in the north, okay? So Omri and Solomon, they were, they were builders, right? So uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a builder, right? People that want to uh, make a name for themselves, what do they do? They build, and then they put what on their... I don't want to be political. <laughs> I, what do they put on their tower? <laughs> they put their name on their tower, right? So, yeah, when you want to make a name for yourself, right? What, what did they? What were they doing in uh, Genesis 11, right? They were building the big tower and making a name for themselves, right? Same thing. Some things don't change, right? So, um, what did I watch? Uh, I watched a movie last week with my son. He's a builder, and all of a sudden he finds out somebody in another city is going to have a building that's 60 feet higher than his, so what does he have to do? Yeah, exactly, right? Oh, we got to figure this out. we got to get 60 more, more feet. All right, so this whole, this whole building thing, this uh, pride thing, this hubris thing, that's what's going on. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, okay? One of the seven wonders of the world. Um, must have been... Very impressive to be there. Uh, Babylon <coughs> means gate of the gods. All right, it's an ancient city in the plain of Shinar and the Euphrates River, about 50 miles south of the modern Baghdad. It was founded by Nimrod of Genesis 10, who developed the world's first organized system of uh, idolatry, which God condemns in Genesis 11. It later became the capital of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. It was of overwhelming size and appearance. Um. When Cyrus uh, attacked Babylon, he diverted the Euphrates River during a feast. Um, why? Because if you go back to the previous picture, I mean, you can kind of see it there, too. Um, what runs right through it? So if you can get that water to get out of there, what can you do? Get in. Get in. Exactly. So... Um, that's exactly what he did. And that's how he got in. That was the Trojan horse. So Nebuchadnezzar, though, <coughs> great builder. Inscriptions, documents, and letters written during the uh, 43 years of his reign give an idea of the power and the wealth of Babylon. Here are some interesting facts, according to the historian uh, Herodotus, about his Babylon. In the form of a square with 14 miles on each side, and of an enormous magnitude. The brick wall was 56 miles long, 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, with another wall 75 feet behind the first wall, and the wall extended 35 feet below ground. So, it was a fortress. It was magnificent. It was strong. Um, they could run chariot races on the walls. It was massive. There was 250 towers that were each 450 feet high. Okay, so towers are for uh, protection, right? They uh, they look out. A wide and a deep moat that encircled the city. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city. Ferry boats and a half mile long bridge with a drawbridge closed at night. The Hanging Gardens um, were one of the 
seven wonders, and water was raised from the river by a hydraulic pump. Okay, hydraulic. Eight massive gates that led to the inner city and 100 brass gates. The streets were paved with stone slabs three foot square. The great tower, the ziggurat, and 63 temples, including the great temple of Marduk, the golden image of Baal, and the golden table, both weighing over 50,000 pounds of solid gold. Two golden lions, a solid gold human figure, 18 feet high, and Nebuchadnezzar's palace is considered to be the most magnificent building ever erected on earth. He knew how to build it. So how do you, how do you build money? And where do you get money from? All the people in the country. <laughs> it's called tribute. We call it taxes in this country. <laughs> the Ishtar Gate. That was a half a joke. The Ishtar Gates of Babylon, okay? The Ishtar gates were constructed by Nebuchadnezzar around 575 BC. It was the uh, eighth gate of the city of Babylon, okay, in present-day uh, Iraq. It was the main entrance to the city. The Ishtar gate was part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan to beautify his empire's capital during the first half of the fifth century. He also restored the Temple of Marduk and he built the Hanging Gardens that we just talked about. Um, the magnificence of the Ishtar gate was so well known that it made the initial list of seven wonders of the ancient world, but it was later replaced by um, lighthouses of Alexander, Alexandria. So, the Ishtar Gate is named so because it was dedicated to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, although Nebuchadnezzar pays homage to other Babylonian de deities uh, as well, through various animal representations, etc. The animals represented on the gate are young bulls, uh, lions, and dragons, these animals are symbolic representations of certain deities. Lions are often associated with Ishtar, bulls with Adad, and the dragons with Marduk. Uh, respectively, Ishtar was also the goddess of fertility, love, war, and sex, and Adad was a weather god, and Marduk was the chief or national god of Babylon. So notice um, on the polytheistic notes that you have multiple gods, but it has a chief god. So the way they viewed Israel is that Israel's chief god was Yahweh. Like they knew about Yahweh, just like Israelites knew about Marduk, you know? And so when you capture them, that's why they take the Ark, right? So we've got Yahweh, their chief god now, all right? The front of the gate of uh, Ishtar, the gate of Ishtar, is uh, adorned with glazed brick <coughs> with alternating rows of dragons and bulls, okay? So you can see in there. The front of the gate, um, the beasts are furnished in yellow and brown tiles, while the bricks surrounding them are blue. The blue enamel tiles are thought to be of um, this special blue. Anyways, the gate measures more than 38 feet high um, with a big antechamber on the southern side of it. Uh, through the gatehouse is the processional way, which is a brick paved corridor over half a mile long with walls over 50 feet tall on each side. The walls are adorned with over 120 sculptured lions, flowers, and enameled yellow tiles. The processional way was used for the New Year celebrations, through which statues of the deities would parade down in the path paved with red and yellow stones, um, rows of red stone and the outer layers of yellow stone in between. Each one of the stones had an inscription underneath it and a small prayer from King Nebuchadnezzar to the chief god Marduk. It was this processional way that led to the temple of Marduk. So you come in this massive entranceway, these gates, 
artistic rendition of it so you can only imagine i mean you got the river running through it here you got the temple there i mean this place is magnificent and 
when, when Daniel comes in, um, I would say this would be alluring. All right, this is what I would say with, um, you know, people come to America. Like, here are all these things you can do in America. And, um, you know, if you come from uh, a country in the world that doesn't have what we would consider just, like, I don't know, basic necessities. Like, there's lots of people in the world, actually the majority, who don't have electricity and running water. So imagine taking one of them and then putting them in the middle of one of our posh American cities at the fanciest hotel, right? I mean, everything is just like eyes bugging out. Nasty place. So I say that because I, I think that without a strong faith and commitment to God, well, what's the obviously, what, what's obviously going to happen? You're quickly going to become just like that culture. Look at what it has to offer you. Look at all these things, right? And so I think that's what happens here also in, in our culture. All these things are thrown at us, okay? It's alluring, all right? All these things that look so awesome. So the time of Babylon's greatest material wealth and splendor, the period which reflected, um, which is reflected in much of the later tradition about Babylon, was all during the, the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And so... Hanging Gardens, okay? Obviously, that's not a photograph. Um, sorry, we don't have one. But the, the Hanging Gardens are, are well known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It's considered by the Greeks uh, to be so. 400 feet of square raised terraces to the height of the city walls. From a distance, it appeared to be a forest-covered mountain um, in the midst of a Mesopotamian valley. Um, the legend says that... Uh, one of his wives, this is the type of environment that she was uh, used to, and she was now kind of in this barren land. And so he, he did all this so that so she wouldn't feel so homesick. So he had pumps, as we mentioned, that would uh, bring the water up out of the river so that uh, all that stuff would flow. So Herodotus wrote, in addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. So, anyway. Just a couple more images. I mean, you can just imagine people, um, you know, in Florida, they like to buy houses in the lake or they like to buy it with a river in the backyard, right? And, I mean, that, that, that's what this was, was like here. Those are actually ruins from it. Okay, so this is archaeological excavation from uh, the Hanging Gardens that we're talking about. All right. <coughs> all right. So with all that said, all right, back to our biblical narrative. That's some of the cultural context and understanding for for what's going on. And so. That's what Daniel is going to be brought to. That's what Ezekiel is brought to. That, that is the environment that they are going to uh, spend uh, the rest of their, their time in, especially Daniel, all the way through his old age. So <coughs> the kings of Judah, the, the last five okay, that were in, in Judah, the, the multiple names are because when the, the other rulers, whether it was Egyptian or Babylonian, 
Babylonian would uh, put them in place as a puppet king, and they would reassign them uh, a name. Same thing that happens to Daniel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Reminds them who's boss. Okay, so uh, Josiah dies at Megiddo. You've seen this now a couple of times, some of you, and is replaced by his son Jehoahaz, okay? So Pharaoh Necho had gone up. All right, he is trying to hold back the Babylonians so that they don't um, overthrow everything. Uh, Josiah interferes, and Josiah is then <coughs> killed. So that led to the end of uh, Josiah's reforms. Josiah was uh, one of the good kings in the south. Um, so after that, uh, and then again, those of you in my first class today, you've seen both of these slides, but they're connected with the situation here. So Babylon met Nico at Carchemish, uh, all right? And at Carchemish, he knocks him out, all right? So what was going on is the teeter-totter effect. And so um, Egypt is trying to prevent Babylon from coming all the way through. And so Egypt tried to make an alliance with Assyria to, to hold Babylon back. Don't let them go past, you know, here or whatever. So uh, Josiah interfered got killed here by Nico. Then Nico's up here with uh, Assyria trying to hold off Babylon, but it doesn't work. And so that's the Battle of Carchemish. Um, I think I list the official five, if I'm not mistaken. All right. And so they end up ruling the world. Ah, so we finally get to verse two. All right. It's, uh, it's time for a break. So the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. <coughs> I missed a couple comments here. I'm going to take a break. Um, Shinar, this is what I mentioned earlier. The word underlined Babylon, that's probably what your Bible says also. It's actually the Hebrew word Shinar. Okay, anybody have a translation that says Shinar? What is it? What translation? ESV? ESV? So ESV says Shinar. So the benefit of saying Shinar is you'll probably be like, what's that? Where is that? And you'll have to go back to Genesis to find out. Okay, so it's in Genesis 10, 10, 11, 2, and Zechariah 5, 11, and that's it. It's only four times in the Bible. So Babylon is much many more times, and so it kind of uh, hides the connection, which is why Dempster and Dumbrell argue that it's not accidental. So the question becomes, why would Daniel and Zechariah in 5.11 mention a city that is nowhere else mentioned except Genesis 10 and 11? And 11 is the Tower of Babel, the origination of Babylon. And where is Daniel? Babylon. And so I think that it's a valid point, <coughs> the argument and the uh, connections related to that. All right? So, uh, let's take a break. All right, so in Daniel 1, 2, we will pick up. It says, The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. And he carried them to the land of Babylon, or Shinar, to the house of his God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here Daniel has some kind of an allusion, okay, back to 
Genesis. So it's just the second uh, verse. So really, until we've read some more, we might not quite be able to uh, figure it out. But something here is related to um, the, the early use of, of Shinar, of Babylon, okay? And what is going on there, all right? We move on, <coughs> continue the, the text. As you read through it, we find out that then, as, as Daniel is brought over, okay, not only is he going to be um, put through a three-year indoctrination, but also he's going to have uh, his name changed, okay? Why? This, this is part of what the rulers would do, is they're trying to erase your identity. They're trying to give you a new identity, okay? You're no longer Daniel, God is my judge, Yahweh is my judge, okay? No, 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 no. Now, now you're here with us, okay? You're Belteshazzar, whom Bel favors. So we have a change in gods, all right? Now, this goes back to Daniel and, and the boys and their faithfulness and character and integrity, that you can change their name, but you can't change what's inside them, okay? And that's the thing that we have to get with our faith. Okay, so it doesn't matter what happens outside of us, it doesn't matter what's attached to us, but it's what's inside of us. And so here you can see the, the different changes, okay? Hanani, which meant God is gracious or God's gift, to Shadrach. The sad thing is that uh, myself included, I know Daniel's name, I don't know the other three. I know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, that's actually not what their names were. Um, that's the new names they got. So, I mean, it is their name. That's what they were called the majority of their life. But, I mean, they're originally Hebrew names. <coughs> so, illumined by Shad, the sun god. Mishael means who is like God, or God is great. Changed to Meshach, who is like Shak, the love goddess. And Azariah, God is my helper, to Abednego, servant of Neg, the fire god. And so, they're brought in. They're given a, a three-year retraining course, okay? This is uh, similar to what... Uh, Nazis did. This is what you do to, to re-educate, re-indoctrinate. Okay, the communists did this. Um, and so their first test or their first trial is going to be um, the culture. And they accept pretty much everything. Except the food. What's the deal with the food? And so in, in Daniel 1, they're, they're offered uh, this food and they don't accept it. So they, they ask for a special diet, and they, they're given the special diet, and God gives them favor. And the important thing that we need to note there is that God gives them favor with it. related to the Levitical uh, food laws. I don't know if that's really what's going on here because later on it appears that Daniel uh, was eating the king's meat and the king's food. Um, there's a, a period of time later on where he says that he fasted and he abstained from it which implies that he was eating it and that's much later than this. So I don't know that it's so much about the Levitical um, aspect of it probably anything that they would eat at that table would have been blessed or offered to the gods. So another thing is, oh, the meat was probably offered to the gods. Um, well, probably everything was. See, it's not like our American culture, where 
where you have your, your face thing and you do it in the corner. No, everything was related to it, okay? So when Nebuchadnezzar is going to go into battle, he's cutting open animals and looking at their liver entrails, liver and entrails, and he's wanting to know what the gods are telling me to do by the, how the liver looks, all right? That's what these priests of the temples would do. So um, don't think it's just about the uh, Levitical thing. There may be something related to the fact that this is something for a further um, a research thing for you. The idea of table fellowship, okay? That you are aligning yourselves with them and, and pledging your allegiance, okay? Now, he doesn't have a con any control over being brought there, all right? So there's a lot of things he doesn't have a control over. <coughs> but there's an element that, again, we don't have it so much in our American culture, but in a lot of the rest of the world, it's part of this hospitality culture. It's part of why we don't understand the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. How can you offer your daughters instead of this man? And I'm not saying that they should have. I'm just saying there's a hospitality culture of the thing that we don't get. Like, you don't bring someone into your home and let them be abused. Like, you're mandated kind of to protect them. So, with meals, who you eat with, what, what is uh, they say about Jesus? He eats meals with sinners. Well, how can you do that? To eat a meal with a sinner means you're inviting them into your inner circle. Okay, and so that may be something about what's going on here also, all right? So uh, to flesh that out, though, you would need, again, the same um, series. Um, let's see. New Studies in Biblical Theology, NTBS. New? No. NSBT. Right? NSBT. New Studies in Biblical Theology. All right. Has a volume uh, that deals with this, uh, meals and sinners and all this and the fellowship aspect and how it is also related to the idea of uh, potentially aligning yourself with them. So that's a potential aspect um, right there as well. So that's that's chapter one, kind of. Uh, so we're going to obviously move quite a bit quicker. <coughs> chapter two, we run into the four um, kingdoms. All right? So... What you could say in chapter 1 is that Daniel learns to be to be faithful to God wherever he is and whatever happens to you. Um, in chapter 2, he, he has this um, image, dream, okay, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And God reveals himself um, through this dream. And the kingdoms are, are fairly well lined out for us. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of debate except for maybe number 4 as far as this, this goes. But God had given them, and it says uh, in the Bible that, that God had given them um, favor and had put them in this position and given them the, the ability uh, to excel at what they did. So they did their part. They excelled as much as they could. And, but God is the one working behind the scenes here. <coughs> um, chapter 2 says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the diviner, the priests, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. And when they came and stood before him, he said, I had a dream, and I want to know what it means. It's worrying me. It's bothering me. And they said, okay, well, we'll tell us. And um, he's like, no, you tell me what I dream. What? And then you tell me what it means. And so they're not, they can't, okay? And so um, he's going to kill everybody, all his, his leadership, okay? Now, this tells you something, by the way, about the gods. Now, just take Daniel and the, and the boys for an example, 
He's already invested uh, three years, okay, at least into them, right? Because he spent three years just getting them ready to be part of his uh, government, okay? And government trainees, if you will. And so this is later on after that, <coughs> he's willing to wipe them all out. That's, that's a big investment, right? That you're just going to throw away. So anyways, this shows us a little bit about the man as well. But what it shows us more than that is how God's revealing himself to some pagan ruler who's filled with pride, who is the same one who is burning down the temple and taking all of God's people, which, of course, he is an instrument in the hand of God, right? And so this um, dream that, that Daniel then uh, is able to interpret because God gives him <coughs> – what the dream is, and he gives them what the interpretation is. All right. So you got the Babylonian Empire, the the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then uh, the Roman Empire. So you look at um, the verse we're going to look at in verse forty-four of chapter two. <coughs> it simply tells us that. Um, 44 and 45, it tells us about this stone. Uh, stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the fire, the treasure, the silver, and the gold. And the great God uh, has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is certain. And at this, Nebuchadnezzar falls down and pays homage to Daniel and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. He said, Your God is indeed God of God, Lord of Lords, and a revealer of mysteries, since you're able to reveal the mysteries. Now, I don't think here that he just got saved. Okay? I think that he's in a polytheistic environment. And I think that he is acknowledging this God of Daniel's. Okay, I do think in chapter 4, um, it looks like he does, though. So, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So, Daniel's influence also allows him to be able to have these three guys appointed in higher government positions. Which ultimately is, is going to get them in trouble uh, when we get to the fiery furnace incident. So, here, Nebuchadnezzar learns about the kingdoms of the world. Now, he has, he has built up this enormous kingdom, and he's a head of gold, okay? But he's also just been told what's going to happen. There's these other kingdoms coming, and yours is not going to last. And so... When that happens, okay, and if you're filled with pride, okay, so what should happen is humility, okay, especially about this rock kingdom that's going to come, and it's going to rock the world, literally, right? And so instead of humility, though, and acknowledging how God had um, you know, put him in this position and, and, and worked through all this, if you take chapter 3 as it relates to this, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is taking his part, the golden head, and he wants to do what with it? He wants to extend it. Because what do we have? We have an entire statue now made of gold in chapter 3. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. He sets it up and he wants everyone to come bow down and worship him. Okay? Well, he's already been told that you are not going to be the final or eternal or long-lasting kingdom. Right? And so it appears here that what happens instead is that he is trying to push that idea forward. That what he wants to have happen is have himself and his reign continue on. So, what
what you have in chapters 2 and 3 with this <coughs> imagery of, of the four kingdoms is God bringing in this global scheme of, of what's going on. Now, um, Dumbrell, yeah, Dumbrell would argue also that there are some similarities with other aspects in the Bible. For instance, with um, Joseph, okay? Both of them were captives at a royal court. Both succeeded where the professional failed. Both were promoted as a result. And most importantly, both operated in an uh, Israel that stood before an exodus, a major impending change. In short, only Israel, only the community of faith has the answer as to the direction that God will take. So Dumbrell's saying that uh, Joseph in Egypt was similar to Daniel in Babylon. Both of them were put into these uh, high-profile positions in the ruler's uh, government structure, if you will, and had leadership uh, positions. So, um, that's a, a similarity there. Um, the, the four kingdoms are going to continue to play a part in the story. Um, there's the, the clash of authorities. We mentioned that on our earlier slide, the authorities and the deliverance. And so that's continuing to show up here. We also mentioned the idea of sovereignty as one of our themes. So if God wants to be known as the ruler of the universe, then he wants all the smaller rulers to what? Acknowledge him. And so he's working on that with Nebuchadnezzar through chapters 2, 3, um, and 4 until the, the tree um, vision. So when we look at uh, this, this has chapter 7 brought into it. I don't want to jump completely into 7 because I want to go to, um, 3, 4, 5, 6 uh, first as well. But I do want to um, help you understand if you haven't already made the connection that there is a relationship between chapters 2 and 7 and, and beyond that as well. That the items that show up in chapter 2, okay, are also then brought up again in different depictions, okay? So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, okay? So I'll, I'll talk further about that in a, a few minutes, all right? So <coughs> we've, we've already had all that, right? So chapter 2, verses 37 to uh, 38 of our text says... Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So if you're looking for the interpretation in the text, okay, Daniel 2, 37 to 38, says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Okay, and in 244, which I already read, was about the stone coming, 44 and 45. And so that's God's kingdom. So the text does allude to, or not even allude, does tell us directly um, what um, some of these are. So then, um, 
chapter uh, three. All right, let's see if I finish there. All right. Well, before we we'll go to chapter three, Th this is um, the the positions that that people have relating to this. So one of the things with Daniel in Revelation is you're going to run into all these different views on it. Okay. And so the first kingdom. Okay. There's really no debate about it. Okay. The this is this is combining seven. I, I said I was going to wait, but it's here. So um, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast from seven. So the critical or liberal uh, view, as they're they're called, holds that um, Babylon. You'll see that all the way down. Lion is Babylon. You'll see that all the way down. Whether it's critical, post, amil, premil, the bear, the second kingdom, media or media Persia, all the way down. The third and the fourth is where we have a little bit of a variance. Persia with the critical and then Greece or Greece and then Rome. Okay? So these are the combined Medes and Persians. This is separated out. Medes and then Persians. Alright? So just as we go through chapters 2 and 7, uh, keep that in mind. In chapter 3, though, you have the image. Now, um, this image that's on here, again, um, is quite likely not how it happened. Okay, and the reason for that is that they had to go um, get these guys and then bring them. It does not appear from the text as if they're, like, in that picture, it's obvious who's standing up, right? In the text, it's, it's not quite as apparent as Lad is. And so it does not seem like they're trying to um, purposely stand out. It's also possible that it's not um, the entire kingdom as much as it's all of the rulership and all of his um, chieftains, if you will. There's that uh, repetition of the phrase, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue. So who's coming to it? The rulers are. All of his government, all of his um, bureaucratic body, if you will. All right? And so, again, it says, that was verse 2. Verse 3 says the same thing, the whole list of all those people. And so it keeps saying this. <coughs> now, notice with me in verse 4 of chapter 3, it says, people of every nation and language, you're commanded when you hear the sound, of course, to bow down. Um, every nation and language. Uh, again, I think we have, if this is a global thing that God is doing, when, when I think of every nation and language, I also think of Revelation. People from every tongue, tribe, language, right? Mm -hmm. So, what is God... Um, doing in this book. Let's, we have a global system here. Nebuchadnezzar has access to the global world, in a sense. We have people from all these places there. Right? Um, then, so, you know the story. So, they, they get thrown in the furnace because they, they wouldn't bow down. Who can rescue you? He says, who is the God who can rescue you from my power in verse number 15? Well, we already know the answer to that. And they say, in verse 17, that uh, the God we serve exists. He can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to worship uh, you or your statue. And they are delivered again. So remember the authority and deliverance themes that we are working with in the text. So um, caught up in the statue dream, yet he's determined to not just be the head. He's got this, this statue. They're coming in, in, way, in the way. They're an obstacle. 
people to what his plan is. So the three were bound and they're cast in the fire. And then in chapter 4, so this all leads up to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is uh, the judgment and the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. The testimony given by the king after his salvation through judgment. Um, Dr. Jim Hamilton has a book called Salvation Through Judgment or something like that. Um, if you Google Jim Hamilton and Salvation and Judgment, it will come up. <coughs> his thesis is that from Genesis to Revelation, that is the theme of what takes place. Salvation occurs through judgment. And so Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 is judged. Um, in our national Israel crisis, Israel is judged. But in their judging, they will also be redeemed. In the judgment of sin and Jesus on the cross, we also were redeemed. So in judgment is salvation. So Jumbo notes that dominion as displayed in an image alludes to Genesis chapter 11 again. It is a renewed attempt to make a name for yourself. The same word, image, salem, that shows up in Genesis, shows up here. And so, again, you have this um, Tower of Babel mentality that God dispersed the languages from, which, again, there's another thing, a connection. When God dispersed them, they suddenly had different languages. And we also have in our text the people of every nation and language. So that's a possible another allusion to this idea of the Genesis uh, story. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, in 4, 2, and 3, it says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation uh, to generation. So, Jumbro again connects this with Genesis and argues that there is a new Eden where all may find security and sustenance. Um, it's under Nebuchadnezzar here, but it's really Nebuchadnezzar is going to get chopped down because he doesn't humble himself. And so, this is another allusion, he argues, to the idea that in Genesis you have the uh, garden and the tree that God provides for all. And the whole uh, bounty is taken care of in the Garden of Eden. Um, in Nebuchadnezzar's um, instance, okay, he does not heed the warning. And so, very quickly, um, what happens after the dream is interpreted is the sentence is executed in chapter 4, verse 28. Um, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. He exclaimed, Is this not Babylon, the great that I built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? In other words, he's trying to be like who? He's claiming to be God. Okay? To be like God. In Genesis 3, 5 and 6, the temptation to Adam and Eve was to be like God. Okay? Also in chapter 11, 4 of Genesis, Isaiah 10 and 14, and Ezekiel 28, you've got the same thing. So remember in Ezekiel and Isaiah, the judgments against uh, uh, Tyre and, um, what's the other one? 
of Ezekiel, Isaiah was uh, Babylon, right? Yeah. So these these same things. Okay. Verse thirty-one of the text, um, Daniel four. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. So that reminds me of Saul. The kingdom's been ripped away from you. It's gone. Also reminds me of the glory departed from um, Samson when he gets up to go fight, right? Or God had left in um, Samuel. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and here is his judgment, okay? And so this um, act of living like an ox, there's actually a, a medical name for it. Um, I don't think I have it on the screen. I had it somewhere. Um, I don't know what happened. Nobody really knows what happened. Like, what, what is this? Like, for seven years, he's off like an animal, like insane or crazy. But then he has humbled himself, and he comes back to being a king again in the, in the kingdom of Babylon. So a very weird situation. Um, again, we're, we're given to understand this big picture here, not all the exact details of how exactly you know, God worked all that out. Um, I really don't know. I don't know if anybody does. So, so at the end, uh, chapter 4, 34 to 35, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say his hand or stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. So what happens to him? He is humbled. He's humbled by this. Because he refused to humble himself, so God humbles him. Okay? That's what we find in scripture all over, right? Every knee shall bow. You either humble yourself or God will humble you. Alright? So, in... Chapter 4, then, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And probably the, the biggest shock when I first understood it was that it pretty much reads as, and I think I take it as, like, he got saved. Like, that's how it reads. Um, really? The guy that burned Jerusalem? The guy that out your people um, but let's jump back a minute if God's global scheme is really to get his name to everyone what better way than to take this cruel taskmaster and turn him to himself isn't that what we're hoping happens with ISIS mm. right that, and by the way that is happening with ISIS so isn't that what we hope happens with the Taliban and all that? That's, that is happening all the time. There's people that are working with them that are bringing the gospel, and that is happening with leaders in those organizations. So that's what's going on. So um, here's what it's called right here, bone anthropy. It's a type of insanity in which a man thinks he's an ox. So that's what it's called. Um, Following on the heels of this is the writing on the wall, okay? So, what does it mean? Well, first off, it's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore, okay? Well, this is Belshazzar. 
So he did not learn. All right? Belshazzar was the last king of the mighty Babylon Empire. He's the son of um, Nabonidus and perhaps the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He served for about 10 years as a co-regent with his father. His judgment is prophesied in Daniel chapter 5. Okay, his father was off out of town. And so that's what we think. And so he was ruling in his stead, okay? And so he gets this judgment against himself, okay? And basically, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And what happens that night? Boom, dead. Okay? Very quick. Okay, Daniel has to be brought in to interpret that for him. And so what keeps happening is God is giving dreams and revelations to people, to pagans, that they don't understand. And so they have to call a man of God in that then God has to give them the interpretation. And so God is orchestrating all of this behind the scenes. Daniel doesn't know it by himself. The pagans certainly don't have any revelation. And so God is doing this, increasingly making himself known as he seeks authority and dominion over all. Um, Daniel 6, well, it's So, um, Daniel 6, I've already mentioned, a whole span of time has taken place. Daniel's an old man at this point, okay? You know the story, okay? So, he, he prays like he always does, and they create this law, so he has to be thrown in there. And uh, God protects him, so he does not die. All right? So, that brings us to chapter 7, okay, which we've already alluded to a little bit. So, in, in chapter 7 through 12, okay, so remember, if you divide the book in two, 1 to 6 and 7 to 12, 7 to 12 is God's uh, sovereign control over the, over the future. All the nations, the whole world, etc. So, the four beasts and the son of man. Alright? So, in this, the four beasts are listed on the screen for you. Okay? As, as God is attempting to bring his glory and his greatness all over. Alright? He, he keeps his promises. And so, you got the Babylonian Empire, the Persian, or the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And in ch chapter 7, the, those four all line up with the image of the statue that was from chapter um, 2, okay? Now, from here forward is where there is quite a bit of uh, interpretive debate, okay? And we're not going to solve any of those problems today, all right? So the little horn um, in verses 8 and 11... And then the Ancient of Days in verses 9 and 10, okay? So then one like the Son of Man in uh, several of the verses, 13, 14, 18, 26, 27, okay? So there is several different um, options as, as to who um, these could be. <coughs> The terrible beast, dreadful, terrible, strong, and different, devouring, breaking, and trampling, okay? All of these things that, that are talked about, okay, um, with, with the horns. And then as, as we read the, the rest of the chapters, we know that um, in, in some of the cases, the horns produce more horns, etc. So horns in the, in the Bible are about uh, power. So um, the horns on the altar, um, they were literally these curved horn things. But that comes from the idea of the horns on a bull, okay? Well, bulls are powerful and strong, so it's, 
it's re referring to that, which is how they get connected to having a, a kingdom or the relationship to the kingdom. Okay? So, in um, the kings and their kingdoms are all made subservient to one like the Son of the Man and to the saints of the Most High who receive the kingdom and under whom all the people's nations and languages shall then serve. So, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heavens, um, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is everlasting dominion. And so, the, the Son of Man, and who exactly these um, are, is... Debated, but to fill out this chart, we continue to see that the horrible beast with the ten horns is there, and then the Ancient of Days gives dominion to the Son of Man is related to the Stone Mountain and God's kingdom. Okay, so that's the contrast on the bottom row with the rest of what's going on. Okay, continue looking at that. The most common title applied to Jesus in the Gospels. I'm still in chapter seven, really, but is the Son of Man, which Jesus himself appears to link directly to the vision of, of Daniel 7. So, uh, the Son of Man, many um, traditional or conservative um, interpreters would hold that to be um, Jesus. Also, many would hold um, the little horn to be the um, Antichrist or the, in the Ancient of Days to be God. Now, those are not the only interpretations. Those are ones you may have heard. They're traditional, um, conservative usually, um, but they're not the only ones. So the, the caution that I urge, particularly with um, Daniel and Revelation and other apocalyptic type um, and future-oriented literature, is make sure we get the, the main point of what God's doing. <coughs> so not that you don't worry about the details. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that um, uh, we make sure we get the main point, okay? There are a lot of key words. Um, dominion is, is repeated um, frequently uh, in this portion. Chapter 7 um, has the word dominion repeated seven different times. Um, and the, the throne scene in the, in the middle of that chapter. So the Son of Man, Jesus was exalted and, and uh, glorified through the cross and uh, was given all authority in heaven and on earth from the Father. And, and so this is just further um, reasonings why it is um, quite likely that he is the one that this is pointing to. So um, in chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat, okay? So the, the Medes and the Persians, the ram had two horns, one higher than the other, and coming up later. So the horns are about power, um, Later would refer probably to the time, and higher is the, the strength or the power of, of the horn. And remember what I mentioned, both this class and my earlier one today, is all of these alliances, there's always one party that's stronger than the other. And then usually one of them boots the other one out. And then later they form another alliance and they boot one of them out, right? So that would fit in. Chapter 8 builds on the kingdom vision that was given in chapters 2 and 7. So this is where the chart that we're kind of building, 2 and 7 and 8, um, continues on. In chapter 8, Daniel envisions first a ram and then a goat. 
The fact that there's only two animals suggests that they display just two kingdoms that rise directly following Babylon. The first, the United Medo-Persians, and the second, that of Greece. In Daniel 8, 20 and 21, as for the rams you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So he tells us. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay? So the male goat comes from the west, not touching the ground, a single notable horn. Attacked the ram with rage and broke his horns. The male goat becomes strong, his horn was broken and replaced by four notable smaller ones. One of the little horns grew up and exalted himself against the sacrifices and the temple. Okay? So, um, when the text tells us who it is, that's obviously always the best, right? So, um, here he is. So, Daniel was by the river when he is given this, alright? And so, you have these two kingdoms, and they're, and they're coming against each other, these world powers. Okay? So, we learned that the, the ram now is the same as the bear, and the chest and arms of silver, and the goat is the same as the winged leopard with the bellies and the thighs. Why a winged leopard, by the way? Wings are speed, they fly, right? Leopards are fast, okay? So that's what those have to do with. All right. <coughs> so, um, let's see. So we got two, seven, and eight. Okay, so we got time periods listed here now. So the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, down to Greece, is going to be Alexander the Great. He does come in like a winged leopard. He comes in very fast. He's young. He takes over very quickly, and then he dies at a young age, too. The legs of iron, the feet of clay, and the iron mixed, and the horrible beast with the ten horns, okay? And so um, that being Rome, okay? as well, the seven Sabbaths, the, uh, the, the weeks, all right, in uh, chapter 9. <coughs> in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was ruler over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, so it's pretty cool how now we have Jeremiah's prophecy coming into play, that Daniel in exile is basing his, his uh, faith and his, his life on what Jeremiah had said back in um, Judah. The prophet, the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord, God, to see him by prayer and petition with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So here you have the confession of him and his people in the, in the kingdom, and he's crying out to God, admitting uh, what they have done uh, as, as wrong, as a people group, okay? And while this was happening, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. 72 weeks, okay? Now, this is where we get into huge debate, okay, over the end times. Our decreed about your people to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah and the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and we'll have nothing. 
the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. Until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay? Matthew 24 might jump into your head. All right. So, 70 weeks. Okay? So, you, you've got from, on this diagram, let's, let's skip that one for a second. <coughs> okay, so... This, I'm going to give you the conservative, uh, traditional one first as a, as a comparison, okay? So this is out of uh, Wahlberg's book, uh, Commentary on Daniel, okay? So the 70 weeks of Daniel. The purposes in chapter 9 are listed, okay, in the text, all right? They were right in the text. Finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation, bring everlasting righteousness, fulfill and conclude prophecy, and establish the millennial temple. Okay, that's what it says in, in the biblical text, all right? So then the question becomes of uh, how does this unfold? And here's where your end time views uh, will begin to diverge, okay? And probably not everyone in the room holds the same ones. I'm just guessing. I don't know. But All right. So you can see over here, 360 days is a Jewish year. So 483, okay, the years times 360 days is 172,880 days. Okay, so you got from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem using 445 BC okay, to 32 AD right, is the triumphal entry of Christ and he's cut off. All right. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD and then you have the tribulation time period. Okay, So now again, this is this is based on the um, the free mill, free trib, conservative Christian traditional view that's on the screen. Okay, so there's several different alternatives. I think I have some of them in there. I don't remember. Um, so the rapture in the middle, the abomination of desolation happens. So you got your your seventieth week is split with three and a half years and three and a half years. The second coming of Christ and a thousand year millennial reign. Okay? Now, <coughs> let me see what my next chart is. Just to. So that's. Uh, Alright, so I think I have the actual viewpoints listed. So that's actually. Whoops, I think that's the same one. Alright, um. So, um, I'm going to skip, skip those. Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay, so this is the Maccabean interpretation, okay? The middle of the 70th week, temple is desecrated, all right? So starting with the, the, the fall of Jerusalem, okay, in 605. Now, that's not the, the burning of 586. 605 is, is the first part, the first deportation. So this one starts from there, all right? And this uses the 434 years, the 62 weeks, the murder of the high priest, which was in the 171 B.C. Okay? And the 70 weeks for the 49 years are from 587 to 538. Okay? It's a Maccabean interpretation. Whoever the Maccabees are, 
They take place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They help Israel get their independence for a short period of time. It's where the apocryphal books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabee are named after. Um, I recommend it for historical readings to understand what's taking place um, in between the Old and the New Testaments. <clears throat> the dispensational interpretation is basically the one that you just saw from Walberg. Okay? And so the crucifixion of Christ, you know, Christ is cut off, and then you've got the rapture and the second coming. All right, and the 70th week is over there. So 69 weeks, 70th, with a gap in between. The historical interpretation is that the time period goes from the first order to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, okay, until the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, that is uh, 69 weeks. And then the 70th week is until Jerusalem is destroyed. So that's historical. So they're not going to hold that there is uh, you know a future aspect to it. Now within th those aren't even really all of them because within the the dispensational camp breaks down further as well. Okay, but in nine twenty six and seven it says after those sixty two weeks the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing, and the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offerings, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolators. So, um, construction from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So, um, John Stevenson has put this uh, together, and the chiastic structure is that right in the middle of it, turning point, is that the Messiah is cut off, alright? And that's the, the structural focus of how that is set up in chapter 9, okay? And, and 10 through 12 is now the, the future vision. It says, Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By the strength through his riches he shall stir up against the realm of Greece, and then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Okay, so with uh, chapters 10 through 12, okay, and, and the future that takes place after that, um, have is in 8 through 12 you're, you're hammering out the details that were in um, 7 and the and the previous aspect also I suppose but the sequence of visions and the interpretation that Daniel 7 has advanced okay are continued in chapters 8 and following and they seem to concentrate on the second and third figures of the vision of Daniel chapter 7 
And so as it continues on, um, three uh, things you have to deal with are the numbers. Okay, so are the numbers symbolically interpreted? All right. Then the calculations. All right. The calculations with the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes in 176. Okay. And then the message. Um, is it re referring to the advent and the crucifixion as you saw on the um, on one of the slides that was just up there? So how you approach these these verses, and I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to uh, spend the first half hour or so of our next class finishing this and wrapping it together. Because I'm, I'm not going to finish that. <coughs> so um, the, the visions and the interpretation uh, of, of the visions tie this section together and then the, the future aspect of all these kingdoms coming together and when Antiochus Epiphanes is brought into the equation and then when you have Alexander the Great um, the leopard with the, the wings and then when he dies what happens to his kingdom? His kingdom is then split up into um, Okay, his kingdom is then split up, okay? So in Daniel 11, <coughs> Kings of the north. Alexander's empire, when he when he dies, is divided. Okay, so you got these guys here. Okay, Ma uh, Macedon, Pergamon, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now, number three and four are your two key guys. Okay, the Ptolemies and the, and the Seleucids or Seleucids, depending on how people say it. They say it different ways. So, the the um, Greek empire is then split up between <coughs> these. So the Seleucids or Seleucus was in the north. Ptolemies took the Egyptian part. Remember, Alexander had the whole thing. Okay, and so these guys are your main players. All right. And Daniel eleven six says, after some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. And she will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. And so Antiochus the, the fourth um, comes down here, and then um, there's an escape, and the appointments are made in Judah about who's going to be, again, all these um, rulers, they put their puppet leaders in, right? And Antiochus said that they could no longer assemble for prayer, they could not observe the Sabbath, they could not have the scriptures, circumcision was out, Dietary laws were illegal, and he mandated pagan sacrifices. Okay, so you have to put yourself in the context of the Jewish covenant with the people. To not be circumcised is to be out of the covenant. Okay, so all of these things were things that Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, and he is an outrage to the Jewish people. So the Maccabees revolt, right? Uh, Judas Maccabee. Uh, Mattathias, etc., et and 166, and they're able to get some um, element of independence for a time period. So, 
what's left with yeah we're out of time <coughs> so that's not what I want and so if you if you put these chapters together you can see how they are talking about the, the same aspects and they expand and add further information along the way okay again this is just one of the interpretations so it doesn't matter if, if we agree with it or don't I just want you to see off of here that the um, the images and the visions continue for, for the 12 chapters to unpack uh, similar or, or related things exactly the same in multiple cases as, as you can see here okay so from chapter 2 through chapter 12 you have the same things being referred to, all right? And then you have certain gaps where some of the stuff is not referred to again. But in some cases, it's further broken down. Like when he's, he says about uh, Greece, that when he dies, it's then going to be further subdivided. And you got those four little horns, and then we just saw how they um, play out. So I think what I want to do is I, I think I need to summarize in, in more than just like two minutes. Um, how some of this fits together. And so <coughs> the, the four kings of, of Persia, um, they talked about there, and then Alexander and the four divisions there, and then the king of the north coming through there uh, as well. All in chapters 11 and 12 as they're unpacking what's already been laid out in the beginning of the book. Okay, So we probably spent a little bit too much time on my background stuff, and um, not as much. I will post a link for the read scripture on Daniel because we're not going to uh, have time to play that right now either. So if you have any questions, let me know. But 